All right, if you have your Bibles, to be turning to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 will be kind of our home base uh, text for this series, and uh, that should not be surprising to to many of you. Um, But before I read, I I do want to say something about Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Many pastors that I have read or listened to have called Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, um, they describe it as a lighthouse text, uh, a lighthouse passage of scripture, meaning, you know, when you go by a lighthouse in the middle of the day with blue skies and great, uh, lots of sunlight, you know, it might be for us, it might be interesting to look at, but it's not that significant. Um, but when darkness falls and the storms arise, that lighthouse becomes a it's an essential guiding light for those to make it through the storm, for those to make it through the darkness. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, is, is, it's a lighthouse text. Maybe if you're in uh, a season of life where there's blue skies and lots of sun, you can read it and see the beauty in it and the significance of it, but you, it might not grip you. But for those of us in the storm, in the darkness, it's essential guiding light. Uh, to help us through, to steer us through. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think this is, again, something worth pondering, no matter what we're, if you're in a dark place, worth meditating on daily. But even if you're in a good place, uh, something to have in your arsenal and think about regularly so you can be pre- prepared for the day of trouble. Uh, let's go ahead and read uh, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3. And this is God's word. <clears throat> Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endure, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have already, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I've already told you, um, tomorrow is 12 years at Grace of Anne for me. This place means a lot to me. I came here, uh, a single 24-year-old man with about a passion for ministry, and that's about it. And now I have a wife, and we have our fourth coming in July, and um, met my wife here and, and learned most of what I know I've learned here. And 
I, I, this place is significant to me, so I'm going to celebrate by taking an off day tomorrow, and they'll probably throw a party without me here. P- probably because I'm not here, they'll throw a party. Um, and, um, but one of the things through the 12 years uh, of ministry that, that is both uh, a, a beautiful part of it and a very messy part of it, a, um, I, I think it's a, it's a privilege that you have as a minister on staff, yet at the same time, it's, it, it, it comes with a significant weight. When you, you, get to, um, you get to enter into some very, very bad messes. Messes that have been brought on by um, remaining sin and, and war that takes place, the war we have against our own flesh. And, you know, we feed the flesh and all of a sudden sin runs rampant and, oh my goodness, some of the, the destruction and the mess. And, and I've seen some of it up firsthand and, and been, again, it's a privilege and it's a way to be in those spots. And then you hear about some things, you know, um, I've seen it happen to things happen with staff members. I've seen things happen with just everyday people that show up around here. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is, is sometimes it's said out loud. You know, you, you, you have this moment where sin is brought to light. There's a big mess. And because of that, you, you have to start talking things like consequences and repercussions. Because of this, this is what's going to have to happen. And sometimes it may seem severe. And sometimes it's said out loud, sometimes it's said in the body language, and sometimes it's, it's, it's said um, behind closed doors with other people. You know, it seems to go well, but then you find out, no, no, they, it didn't go well. in the response or the, the, um, the rejection or the, the, the rebuttal goes something like this. <clears throat> what about grace? Like, th- this place is called Gracie Van. We preach grace. We talk about forgiveness. What about grace? What happened to grace here? Oh, that's something you just preach. You don't really mean it, do you? Because you're being mean to me right now. And the reason why I titled this series, God's Discipline and Unexpected Grace, is because I believe that most of us have a sloppy, poor, bad definition of grace. Grace simply means to most of us, I just get away with it. Uh, There's no consequences. I should just get away with it because that's grace. And one of the things I want to talk about, by the way, in night three, it's going to take to night three to get there, um, that all of it, being exposed, being rebuked, being corrected, severe consequences. All of it. All of it is grace. Every bit of that is grace. Uh, I told you we're going to get there at night three, and the reason why it's going to take us to night three to get there is because there's some... I think before we talk about God's discipline, we have to back up and discuss some some common questions that we have when it comes to God's discipline. Um, so we have to address those before moving forward. And by the way, I, I now I'm starting to see, to see why Dr. Young on Wednesday night, you know, he starts a series and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to do this for the entire year. It's like, how did that happen? And it's like, well, you, you get in there. I thought I had a clean three-part series and then all of a sudden this happened and that happened. And it's like I'm trying to cram six messages into three, so bear with me. But, but I, before we get to that piece of God's discipline, I want to back up and answer some some 
some questions that we would have that would, um, that would challenge us on a theological level. And, and what I want to do, I think it also challenges me uh, on, a, on a pastoral level. And so um, there's two questions that we're going to cover, one tonight and one tomorrow night. But the first question that I want to spend the rest of the night talking about is this. It's a very important theological question, but it has pastoral implications. Is the suffering that I'm in or the suffering that I'm going through or went through is all that suffering, that misery, that pain, that crisis that happened in my life, is it always because God is correcting me, disciplining me for a specific sin? Am I suffering because of a sin that I committed and now God is disciplining me, correcting me, because of, again, my own personal sin. Now, now hear me right. I'm not saying, am I suffering because of sin? The answer to that is, of course, yes. Genesis 3, since the fall happened and sin entered in, sickness and suffering, all that, yes. It's on a macro level, on a big picture, yes, because of sin. But when it comes to my own pain, I, I need to know, is it because of something I did? Uh, that's a significant thing to, to wrestle with in the debate because I, I, I believe this, that the default mode of the heart, I think it's the default mode, is for me when I'm in the middle of, of tragedy is to think God's getting me for something. There's something I did and God is getting me for it right now. God is angry. <clears throat> Um, for example, um, I think about things like miscarriage, which is near and dear to our home. We've had two of them. And, and being a, a pastor or finding your name in the back of the bulletin doesn't exempt you from certain questions, and especially in the middle of the night as you're grieving the loss of an unborn child, and, 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 and you can't help but wonder, and you can't help but almost ask out loud, is, is this because, maybe this is because I, I had a, a, an idolatrous desire to be a dad or a mom. And because that got carried away, God took away this child. Or, or, or um, if you've ever wrestled with infertility, or had seasons of infertility, I mean, have you ever asked the question, is this because of, you know, man, I had a porn habit, or maybe I have a porn habit, and this is, you know, it's porn habit. Okay, that's in sexual sin world, and not being able to, infertility, okay, God's getting me, because of that. Um, when I was in, in college, and hopefully college students, you don't have to deal with this, but, uh, but when I was in college, I, you know, it was specifically targeted at our, our females, but even men got this a little bit. You know, you would have this good desire to date and to marry, and, and, and you, you wanted that deeply, and, and it wasn't happening for you, and, and so you're single, and, and, and the thing that was taught over and over and over again was, um, you know, if you were just content, God would probably bring along a spouse for you. The, the problem you're facing right now is you need to learn contentment. At least that's what I was told, and, and, and so... And so um, and so it's true, probably in that season of life, yes, I'm needing to learn contentment. True. But that's not the way it was presented. 
It was presented because you are discontent, because you have, you, you're sinning and you are lacking contentment. Uh, God is letting you have it. You're, you're, you're a single man or woman because of that. Fills a little workspace. Maybe I'm crazy. Or you get a cancer diagnosis and what in the world can run through your head as that's going on of like, what what, is this because of me? I'm just here to tell you that that I think one of the most difficult parts of the crisis that comes when it comes to us, that moment of trouble, that dark season, one of the hardest parts is asking the question, is this my fault? What sin did I commit? And God seems so silent. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that's asked those questions. If I just know what I did, it'd really help. The pain is great, but, but not knowing and blaming myself is almost harder. So as you see, we, we need to back up before we even talk about the, God's discipline. We need to talk about this whole idea of suffering and is every piece of suffering a result of a specific sin that I committed? And um, y'all, I am here to tell you the answer on the authority of God's word to that question. Is my sin always God correcting a specific sin in my life through discipline? The answer to that question is no. Not always. No. I want to point out two clear examples in Scripture to back, out, back up that statement on the authority of God's word with every fiber of my being, I'm telling you, no. We're going to talk about two examples in Scripture that are clear, and then I want to finish up by just making some basic application at the end, and, and then we'll move on. First, first, when it comes to, okay, so is all suffering, again, is it this a result of specific sin? You know, we have to think about, naturally, the, the book of Job. And when you go back to the book of Job, you recognize that what's going on behind the scenes that Job doesn't know anything about is that um, Satan comes before God and God's like, have you considered my servant Job? And, you know, he's blameless and upright and he fears me. And, and, and Satan's charge, accusation against God is, well, you recognize that, that Job, um, Job fears you, Job follows you, Job worships you because you've given him lots of kids, you've given him lots of money. You've given them lots of possessions. You've given, them, you've given them great health. And the accusation before God is if you remove the stuff, Job will curse you to your face. The charge is, God, you, you are not enough for your people by yourself. You alone, you are not enough for your people. And if you want me to prove that to you, you remove the stuff away from your people. You take away health. You take away children. You take away possessions and money. And you take those things away and you watch what they do. Because you alone are not enough. They they need you plus stuff. Actually, they need you to be a means to get stuff. So take away the stuff and you will take away their worship. That's a large accusation. And by the way, if there's something in you that doesn't get angry about the prosperity gospel, that should be the top of the list because they're saying yes and amen to Satan. Um, But in Job chapter one, verse one, this is how the book starts. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
You know, I remember reading that and thinking to myself, is, is Job, is this saying he's perfect and absolutely not? In verse 5, he's making sacrifices for himself and for his family. But what the author is telling you from the very first verse, from the very first verse, is that what's about to happen to Job cannot be connected to any specific sin that Job's committed. Can't be. You know, that's, the, that's one of the major themes that's going on after all the suffering happens to Job and all the things that happen is his friends come up and they, they keep telling Job, they keep telling Job, you know, Job, you know, it's not enough that Job went through what he went through and all the things he lost, but he has now friends telling him this, it's your fault. There's some sin that you have not confessed. There's some sin that you've committed and, and um, therefore look at your life. You're suffering because you've sinned. It's a big, it's a big topic throughout the entire book of, of, of Job. And the problem with Job's friends is that they have a harsh and mechanical understanding of retribution theology. Like most, some of us in here, you know, God will bless you if you do good. But the minute you step out of line, the minute that you sin, here comes the bad stuff. And Job, and so therefore, again, if you sin, you will suffer. So therefore, Job, you are suffering big time, so you have sinned big time. And so what we have to see from the book of Job itself, from the opening verse, that not every piece of suffering can be connected to a specific sin because it wasn't for Job. And by the way, as a side note, y'all, be, and to myself, be very, very, very cautious and very careful the way we judge other people's pain. Oh, you know, their kids went off to college and, oh, they're a mess. You know, they seem like great parents, but I bet you behind closed doors, they didn't discipline like we did. They didn't love them like, like we did. I mean, look, you know, see, careful. Very careful. But we see here that one reason for suffering for Job, the reason for suffering for Job is a proof that, that God is enough for his people. God is enough for his people. The second example, and you can, you can, you don't have to flip there, but you can if you want to, is John chapter 9, and John Piper pretty much give, gave me everything that I'm about to say here. But John chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3, it says this, as he passed by, he saw a man, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Here we have a man that was born with a disability from day one. He was unable to see. He was blind. And can you imagine again the things that the parents were thinking their own, in their, their own minds as they see that this boy is blind and all the, the issues that would cause. He's now a beggar and, and the hardships for their parents. And here we have the disciples asking Jesus, well, okay, whose, whose fault is it? What's the cause here? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus in his answer is beautiful. You know, they're wanting no cause and fault. And Jesus, instead of addressing cause and fault, he flips it on his head. He says, I want to tell you something about, about uh, something on the divine level. I want to tell you something about divine purpose. Jesus' response is so key, and you, we must make note of it. In verse 3, Jesus, said, Jesus answered, It is not that this man has sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Whose fault is it? We're not going to talk about faults. This is not about specific sin, but let me tell you quickly about divine purpose. Cause can only get us so far, but divine purpose, that, that, that can get us all the way there. He's, he's telling them that, that the reason this man is blind is so that the works of God will be on display. And for this man in particular, that meant the healing work of God on display. This wasn't about personal sin. This was about the work of God on display. And let me quickly just also go on to say that, that in this case, it was healing. And for many cases, it does, mean, does not mean healing. And for Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember he has this, whatever this thorn in his flesh is, and he asked God again and again and again, will you remove this thorn from my flesh? And you remember the, what, this, what the response was. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so for this blind man, the work of God would be on display by him being healed. And for Paul, the work of God will be on display as he sustains Paul through weakness. I got permission to say this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think I have enough time. Yesterday, we had a funeral for a beloved member of this church and a beloved family of this church, um, Mitchell um, Billingsley. And I'm not sure if you know Mitchell's story, but um, has a, born with a disease that caused him to spend the last 14, I believe, 14 years of his life in a wheelchair. He died at 25 years old. And um, that funeral, funeral yesterday was absolutely moving. Four of his friends got up there to talk about their friend. And I don't think they, they, they compare notes because they end up saying the exact same thing. You know, this guy, he, he never complained. He was a joy to be around, and he made us laugh. He was so funny. And the Billingsley family, they were so warm to us. The next one gets up. He, was, he never complained. He was so funny. We love the Billingsley family. He never complained. He was a, such a funny guy. And boy, the Billingsley family really took us in and took care of us. And while I don't have all the answers about his life, I can tell you this, that, that, that I would, how dare anybody would be like, well, who sinned here? Because what we saw yesterday was the sustaining power, the sustaining work of God, the sustaining grace of God on display. You couldn't miss it. It was palpable. So in those two examples, we see that there is no connection to a specific sin that's being corrected. They did something and God's getting them now. God is being shown to be enough and God's work is on display in their suffering. And with that said, I, I do, I, I do want to make some quick applications, just as again, just as kind of an introduction thoughts um, before we move forward in God's discipline. I think this, this one is, is, is from me, nowhere else, so I'm always like, well, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but, but, but my pastoral counsel to anybody, to you, would be if you find yourself in a season of suffering, if there's pain in your life, and you cannot make a clear, direct link to a specific, a specific sin, 
We're going to talk about David next week, David and Bathsheba and David killing. And, you know, that, that one you can link back pretty clearly. Oh, what happened here? Well, David sinned and God's now disciplining him. But if you can't make a clear link back to a specific sin, here's my, my just pastoral counsel to you. Don't add the weight and the confusion and the pain of trying to figure out what sin did I commit. Be like Job and say, no, I, I, this is not because of a sin that I committed. God's up to something, but it's not that. That time's pain and that time is already confusing enough. Don't increase the pain and the confusion by adding that guilt onto yourself. I believe that's out of the pits of hell. That's not the Holy Spirit of God. But with that being said, let me move on to the second application, and that is this, that pain has a way of um, exposing, exposing sin that we didn't know was there. Pain has a way of exposing our treasure. It has a, a way of expo- exposing inordinate loves and desires. Um, the way I like to think about it is if you take a snow globe and, you know, you, it looks all, you don't see anything on the bottom, but you start shaking it up and all of a sudden, boom. Well, now you see all kinds of stuff, all kinds of mess, not for the snow globe, but you see all kinds of stuff now when you shake it up. And my point is this, that, that in the middle of pain, there is going to be sin exposed, sin that should be repented of. And we should ask God to use that pain to expose those things in us. But we have to differentiate that and saying, well, what I'm, what's being exposed is the reason why I'm suffering. Because you recognize in the story of Job, especially if you get to like chapter 19, he makes some accusations about God that are simply bad, sinful, wrong. He goes too far. The, there's almost some, some pride in Job that gets stirred up that, he, that we get to see. There's, there's some misunderstandings and, and bad theology when it comes to his understanding about God. And so at the end of Job in chapter 42, Job repents. But because he repents, go back to chapter 1, That sin that he's repenting of was not the cause for the suffering. And so I think it's important to be able to distinguish those two. To know and to be able to be confident and say, I'm not going to just heap blame and shame on myself. But at the same time, I'm thankful because God's doing this. God's going to be exposing stuff in me that I get an opportunity to repent of. The final thing, and we're done. Um, when we go back to Hebrews chapter 12, you might ask the question that I've, I've asked before, and that is, does this text apply for somebody in Job's situation or the man in John 9? John 9? Does this text ap- apply? Because you see, this is about discipline. You see that in verse 7 and in verse 11 and, and throughout. Like this is in, also in verse, I think, 5, but um, no, verse 6. So you, you, this is about discipline. And, and so is this, does this text um, does it apply to, to me if I find myself in this position of Job or the man in um, John 9? Y'all, by the way, I'm in the middle of Greek 2. So because I'm in Greek 2, you, you're now uh, obligated to say Greek words. Uh, <laughs> but there is, uh, there is a word here for discipline that I think is very, very helpful. Um, padean, which is, which is a, a word, a padean is a word that, yes, it does mean disciplinary cor- correction. It does mean that. But at the same time, it also means training. It, it, and I'm not saying that the word is not 
um, interpreted rightly here. I'm just simply saying that that word, when you see in verse 7, discipline, that, that our English word does not give us the full understanding and meaning of that word. That that, that word, Padean, shows up again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it talks about God's word. It's, 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 able, to, it's, using, it's, it's able to be used as, a, as training for righteousness. That word training, that's the same word used here in verse 7. And so I say all that to say that, that um, I, I, I read this illustration in, um, it was in our men's Bible study book uh, written by Michael Kruger um, when we were going through the book of Hebrews. And it was an athletic illustration. And um, because I was a very below average athlete, I connect with it. And, uh, and so, but it was just the, the illustration. If you walk up into a, a, a practice and you see a coach, you know, he's got a practice going on and you see the team is running. I mean, running like dogs, just running until they look like they're going to puke. And there's a couple things that could be going on there. One is, is, well, they might've played a horrible game the night before. They might've had terrible attitudes and they might be just needing a little bit of a correction or, or you know what? We need to get ready for the fourth quarter. We need to be ready for the second half. I've got to be able to finish that 800-meter race with, with excellence and, 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 and finish strong. Which one is it? And, and it's, it's Michael Kruger that goes on to say this. If you were looking at a training session from a distance and watching players run around the field, you wouldn't know wh which reason was motivating the coach. Is he disciplining them or training them? In a sense, it doesn't matter. It is all to make them better runners and better members of the team. That same perspective we should have on God's discipline. Sometimes he disciplines us because we are doing wrong things. Sometimes he disciplines us just to make us better runners. It's not always clear which of these God is doing, but in a sense, it doesn't matter. We can trust in our good father who knows what we need. He's making us fitter and more prepared to run the race. And so I'm here just to tell you that this text, wherever you find yourself, is a lighthouse text. When the storm comes, it's the guiding light through the storm. It gives me perspective and understanding of what God is up to. And all of a sudden, you, all of a sudden your, your view is elevated, not just to cause, but all of a sudden you see divine purpose. This lighthouse text is for us, for the people of God. Um, next week, when, if you come back, <laughs> um, and I hope you do, I want to, there's another question I told you I want to address on the front end, and, and that's this. It's another issue that I personally have, and maybe I'm projecting on you. But um, why such severe consequences for forgiven sin? Does it feel like a little bit of a double jeopardy situation here? Uh, we'll try to answer that as best as we can uh, next week, and then we'll actually get to Hebrews 12. So... Um, let me close us in prayer. And um, Father, I, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the guiding light that it is. Um, I know in a room this size that there's many that come in here with, with pain and I ask that you would apply this to our lives. 
Father, for the, the, the pain that we have in the past, that, that we have experienced healing, but at the same time, we, we still walk away around with, with unneeded shame and, and, um, and blaming of ourselves. Would, would you bring relief tonight? And we do, as your people, thank you that you love us so much that you would discipline us. We thank you for that grace. Um, and, and would you use the next two weeks to, to shape our understanding uh, of what you are up to so that we would know you better, so that we would, have, uh, that so we, we would be able to rejoice in the midst of the storm. And we ask for all this in your son's name. Amen.